0: A smaller time venture capitalist, maybe more of even a super angel in Minneapolis, a guy named Paul Crawford, Crawford Capital. And he had spent 20, 30 years doing BC angel investments, kind of the hard way, by collecting five, ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars a pop from farmers, small business owners around the state. He didn't fund my procurement business, but we exchanged cards and he reached out to me out of the blue and he said, Hey, Lex, I got these internet retail startups. You seem like a knowledgeable guy. Can you come and help me? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, my days are free and I'm just kind of stirring things this whole time. So he had these things he wanted to sell, but he didn't have a marketing budget. And I started to think about, well, okay, well, how do you grow customers if you don't have money to buy advertising? And then a Wall Street Journal article came out about Jeff Bezos and he had started something called an affiliate program. I'm reading this article and my neck hairs went up, like this is genius. You only pay for an ad if you get a sale from it. guy's brilliant. This is exactly how you can grow a business without having upfront capital. And I looked around at all the different technology solutions and from my vantage point, they didn't quite make it easy. There were a couple large competitors, well-funded in the space. But what happened is I took the same business model from the first company I started, the procurement company, which is kind of a trusted third party that aggregated payments and transactions. And I just slid it over into a new market space, affiliate marketing, called it Commission
1: Junction. That was Lex Sisney. And as you just heard, he's the founder of Commission Junction, which is one of the web's most important third-party affiliate marketing networks. Some of you, of course, already know all about affiliate marketing. However, in my experience, lots of internet users have no idea it exists, which is a bit odd considering affiliate marketing is at the heart of how most quote-unquote free content websites make their money. And that seems worth knowing something about, right? Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hello and welcome to Webmasters, this is the podcast that explores entrepreneurship by speaking with some of the internet's most prominent and impactful early innovators. My name is Aaron Dinnan. I'm a serial web entrepreneur, I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and the first job I ever had out of college was writing web copy for an affiliate marketing company. That's when I discovered the websites I was visiting every day for my entertainment really weren't there to help me talk with friends and watch silly cat videos. They existed in order to get me to click ads, which is how those websites were making money. And the companies that connect web publishers with advertisers are affiliate marketing companies just like Commission Junction, which is what we're going to learn about today. But before I can tell you all about that advertising company, I need to, well, pause for an advertisement. Webmasters wouldn't be possible without the support of our incredible partner, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions company that specializes in brokering deals for cash flow positive internet businesses. Those are the kinds of businesses we often explore here on the show e commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, SaaS apps, and of course, content websites that monetize through affiliate marketing. If you happen to own a website like that and are interested in selling it, reach out to the team at Latona's and they can help you get top dollar by leveraging their huge community of buyers. Or if you happen to be one of those potential buyers interested in purchasing an already profitable internet business, be sure to check out the Latona's website to see if their latest listings look good to you. That's latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. Since I learned about affiliate marketing early in my web career, I tend to just assume everyone else understands it, so I'm always a bit surprised when I discover that's not actually the case. For example, when I explain the Amazon Affiliates program to students in my entrepreneurship classes, most of them are a bit shocked. They had no idea the Amazon links they're clicking on other websites or in the video descriptions of their favorite YouTube channels are affiliate links, and the person who put them there is making money when someone clicks and then buys from Amazon. Not only are my students genuinely surprised when I explain what's happening, a lot of them even feel a bit deceived and cheated. So because people tend to either know about affiliate marketing or have no clue it exists, I'm gonna kick off this episode by allowing our guest, Lex Sisney, to explain affiliate marketing and why it matters so we can be sure everyone is on roughly the same page.
0: Imagine a commission sales force. They don't get a salary, they get paid a commission when they sell something, right? It's the same thing at massive scale online. A publisher or an affiliate has a website or an email list and they can put an ad in that, in that email or on that page that makes a referral and if a consumer or business clicks on it and buys what's being sold, that affiliate makes a commission. From an advertiser standpoint, it's performance marketing. You only are paying for an ad if it drives some result to you.
1: Okay, so advertisers pay web publishers a commission every time those publishers send a customer who makes a purchase. That seems pretty straightforward. Was that a hard thing to sell people on? The really interesting thing about that is I actually spent a good four or five years of
0: my life trying to communicate it to the world that wasn't able to understand it at the time. That was really interesting. What should we call it? How do we communicate it? Like that was a real struggle. Something that I felt I knew intuitively, which should be easy to understand. And I'd be shocked. Nine out of 10 people would just, eyes would glaze over.
1: But this is like the standard of the internet now, right?
0: Yeah. And now most of online advertising has shifted towards that model. There was a huge debate at that time of, is the advertising medium of the web going to be called CPM or pay for impressions like you do on television advertising or billboard advertising? Or is it gonna shift towards performance, pay per action? And it's clearly dominated now by pay per action, but at the time there was this fierce debate. Newspapers and media companies can't sustain themselves on a cost per action basis, it has to be CPM. So there was this huge fight between camps and merchants about what model works for the whole ecosystem and the fact that you can track everything online is just going to mean it's a performance medium
1: this right here was the big debate surrounding the ways companies would eventually monetize traffic or in marketing parlance you'll often hear people say eyeballs monetize eyeballs on the web historically publications could only roughly track how many people would see an advertisement they based that on things like subscription numbers for magazines and newspapers or viewers for TV programs. So they sold advertising based on estimated number of views. You heard Lex refer to the traditional metric for that, CPM, which stands for cost per mille, mille being the Latin word for thousand. So you were paying a certain amount based on an expected number of thousands of ad views. In the early days of the web cpm was the standard advertising metric as well web publishers would charge advertisers a few pennies for every thousand banner impressions on a website but people quickly realized hey the web actually lets us know whether or not the person who saw an ad clicked on it and visited the advertiser's website that resulted in cost per click advertising cpc which by the way is the core ad unit for google and facebook Additionally, marketers figured out you could take the CPC concept a step further. Instead of an advertiser paying for a click, which still may or may not have value, what if an advertiser only paid the publisher if the person who came to their website actually bought something, or signed up for a newsletter, or whatever goal the advertiser set? This is called a cost per action model, CPA, and it's the foundation of affiliate marketing. Also, as you heard Lex mention at the beginning of this episode, it creates business opportunities for people who don't have the capital to pay for advertising up front.
0: He had these things he wanted to sell, but he didn't have a marketing budget. And I started to think about, well, okay, well, how do you grow customers if you don't have money to buy advertising?
1: In other words, affiliate marketing is a revolutionary idea in terms of entrepreneurship. Think about it. If you need thousands of dollars to advertise your product before you can ever make a sale, then you've limited the number of people who can build companies. But if you only have to pay for the advertising after you make a sale, well, that dramatically expands the limits of what kinds of companies are possible and, just as importantly, who can launch them. Now, was this Lex's vision all along? Not exactly. And as you heard, he got the idea for the affiliate model after reading what Jeff Bezos was doing at Amazon. But from a very early age, Lex was definitely determined he was going to build something impactful in the world, even if he didn't quite know what that was just yet.
0: I was really clear I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. In fact, this is a little strange, I admit, but do you remember the Olympic Games with Mary Lou Retton, the gymnast? So for those who aren't aware, she was like the it child of that Olympic
1: Games. This would have been the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles.
0: You know, beaming smile super radiant on the box of Wheaties and I remember watching those Olympics and just feeling totally dejected because here's a fellow human who at a really early age knew her purpose like right at birth just laser focus. and I just craved that you know had no idea what my purpose was what I was supposed to do on this earth and I was really depressed This is, I guess, 10, 11, 12 years old. I don't know the exact time, but pretty young, right? So I start thinking about that question at a really young age. Like, well, what should I do? You know, what's my purpose here? Super cute. I decided I wasn't really good at anything, but I could outwork just about anyone. So I wrote a little sign that if I work harder than anyone else, I can accomplish anything. And I put it over my bedroom mirror. And my plan, as dumb as it was, was just to work hard, And I would go to work for someone for a few years, I'd learn how they do it, and then I'd quit and I'd go launch my own business. Okay, That was the mind of a 12-year-old. So that's, as strange as it sounds, that was kind of the impetus.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's quite the existential crisis for a 12-year-old. It really was, it really was, yeah. So that would have been the 1984 Olympics. You're... 12-ish, which means you're graduating college right around the time the public web is coming into existence in 1992-ish. How did you discover the web?
0: So the web kind of came right as I was graduating college and I went overseas to Asia from St. Paul, Minnesota. I went to go live and work in Beijing for an American computer firm. For most people, it was pre-internet, right? But we had a division in Minneapolis that had flown over to China to start to talk about HTML and the early web, and how we need to start to look at this and leverage these kinds of things in our own client work in Asia pack. So the first website I saw was actually some headshots of the marketing team in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in Beijing. But something about what they were talking about was really interesting to me, and I've always been an avid reader. And so at that stage in web development, there's a lot of hype, a lot of interest, a lot of people forecasting the early future, how this is going to change everything and da, 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 da. And I just said, okay, this feels like the lake I want to jump in to start my own company.
1: Were you interested in computers at all before that? Were you, I guess we might call it a computer nerd or any type of computer person at this point?
0: I wasn't a computer person at all, just kind of could sense the opportunity. And I taught myself basic HTML that was even easy to teach yourself then.
1: So you didn't really know computers or the web, but you decided you were going to start an internet business. How'd that go?
0: I worked for a couple more years with the firm I was with throughout Asia, working with large companies, helping them design internet or e-commerce services. And, you know, to understand that era you just had to pretend you knew what you were talking about and you had a lot of credibility. I mean, it was really fundamentally silly, but true. It'd be like, I'm a Bitcoin expert. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, you can just get away with a lot in a wild west setting. So that was me just pretending I knew what I was doing and working with large companies though to help them do their initiatives. And then I decided, yeah, I have an idea. It's going to be corporate procurement network. And I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to fly back to Minnesota, I'm gonna move into my mom's llama ranch in rural Minnesota to save money, and I'm gonna put all my savings into this. I'm gonna create a business plan, a business card, my cell phone, and I'm gonna go get money. I'm reading about all these other people just like me raising money on a napkin. I can do this, so I quit, did that, and I proceeded to spend about the next nine months just passionately but haphazardly, maybe not haphazardly, very consistently every day, trying to sell this idea, get capital, attract a technology partner, just by myself in rural isolation in Minnesota.
1: Wait, that wasn't an exaggeration? You were actually living on a llama farm?
0: Actually a llama farm, yeah. So if you picture Minnesota in the dead of winter, my day would consist of, I'd get up at 4.30 in the morning, I'd go to the local gym, I'd come back, I'd shovel llama poop for my mom, have breakfast and then go down in my basement bedroom in her house and just work email, make phone calls, drive down to the city about an hour, hour and a half down to the city, meet with people and just trying to hustle, you know, just trying to stir stuff
1: up. And you said you spent nine months there. I'm guessing that wasn't very productive.
0: I'd spent all my savings. I was definitely ready to move out of my mom's llama farm and have a social life again. And so I moved downtown Minneapolis, Had some old friends in the area. I found a room to rent in a house with a bunch of other people. And so remember, I was in corporate America. I had a career, I left it. It was almost like I was back in grad school without the degree, like no money, need money. was this my shot, you know? And some of the best decisions I've made in my life have been when I've tried to take my ego out of the equation. And so I was at this crossroads and said, okay, do I go back to corporate America No, there's opportunity here. I know I can be an entrepreneur. What I need to do is I need cash flow and I need to keep my days free so I can keep pursuing my dreams. And so I said, what can I do that keeps my days free and still generates cash flow? And so I went to, I crashed a Minneapolis bartender school course, (laughs) got a bartender certificate after like two or three weeks. I went to the hottest cigar bar in downtown Minneapolis Kind of bluffed my way in. They hired me as a bartender to work at nights and on the weekends. And that's what I did. I just kept working nights, kept my days free, kept hustling, hustling, hustling.
1: And hustling is what led Lex to meet Paul Crawford, the local investor you heard about at the beginning of this episode. Lex eventually pitched Crawford his affiliate marketing concept. Crawford agreed to invest, and Lex had his first big opportunity. There was just one problem he didn't have the technology to pull it off.
0: I was really clear on the business model and we lacked the technology. So I'm running around Minneapolis, St. Paul area, pitching technology service companies, engineering people, and everyone's going, no, it won't work. No, it won't work. No, it can't be done. I didn't know enough to know why they were wrong. I just knew they were wrong. So what happened is I found a company out of Los Angeles that had typos on the website. The pricing model was really off for my vantage point, but they purported the ability to have the technology that I knew I needed, which was a software less install on merchant servers so we can track sales and leads without a lot of time and effort involved, like quick, scalable tracking. They claimed the ability to have that, and in Minnesota, everyone's saying it can't be done. So I called this company up and I spoke to the CEO, his name was Mark, and we chatted a little bit and I started asking him questions. I said, well, how did you do this technology? And he started to give me answers, like I would give, like I could tell he wasn't the technologist. So I said, well, who built this software for you? And then it was silence on his end. A good minute of just no answer. And finally I heard him go, okay, honestly I didn't build this software, you gotta call this guy named Per Petterson at UCSB in Santa Barbara, California, he built it.
1: So you, what, stole his developer? <laughs>
0: So I said, thanks, Mark, So we'll stay in touch. And I called Pear. is a really interesting, amazing human, super brilliant. He's out of Norway, kind of a natural leader, very, very brilliant. And he and some fellow Norwegian nationals, five or six, were all on computer science scholarship at UCSB. So I called Pear up, asked him a few questions, and said, I had an idea, I wanted to talk to him about it, and I flew out. I went to their little office park by the airport in Santa Barbara. And I walked in and there's six Norwegians crammed in a closet. It's kind of surreal. One of them, a really brilliant computer scientist is about seven feet tall and very quiet. And he's in this little closet with six other Norwegians. So Pear and I go into the, like they're renting office space. So there's a shared conference room, right? We're sitting at this cheap conference room, cheap table. Pear sits himself at the other end of the conference table and I'm at the other end by the whiteboard. And he starts asking me questions, but they're not information-seeking questions. They're almost veiled attacks. And he's super brilliant, very aggressive guy. And he's kind of throwing verbal punches about why it won't work this way, why that won't work, why that won't work, why that won't work. And how'd you respond to those attacks? Okay, step into my shoes. I've been at this now in my freaking mom's llama ranch for many dark months, okay? I have passionately pursued this for... Couple years. I'm really frustrated it hasn't gotten off. I'm on the hunt. Like I can smell this thing coming together, right? So I'd spent so much time. I'd thought through all these objections. I'd heard them. And so I'm taking each objection and I'm just kind of doing a little judo move. And after like 30 minutes of hammering me, and I love Pear to death, his body language just kind of goes Just kind of slouches. Maybe 30 seconds looking at the floor, kind of talking things over his head. Finally, he looks up, he makes eye contact with me and he goes, okay, we'll do it. Now, what had happened, I learned later, is that he had just gotten back from a VC meeting in Florida. And the VC just hammered him with all these reasons the business wouldn't work. And just by virtue of I had spent a lot more time thinking and reflecting on it out in the trenches, I was able to answer the objections that he really wasn't able to answer. And I think just because of that, he was like, okay,
1: so I know you're in Santa Barbara now. Is it safe to assume you basically met your co-founder in beautiful Santa Barbara and decided that's a gorgeous place to build a company, so you have moved out there rather than staying in Minnesota?
0: What happened is we first started just building the software on spec. We'll come up with some kind of revenue share. And I go back to Minneapolis. We're hiring up a small team, sales, biz dev, customer support. That goes on for a few weeks. I start trying to sell pair on the idea of really creating a company, really joining forces, but he has to stop all the other work that they're doing. You know, We'll provide the capital. We'll do an asset merger. And that took several months, but then it was a question of, are we going to build this in Minnesota or in Santa Barbara? And this is funny. I remember very vividly, I'm on the phone, and it's on the speaker. I go, well, do you guys want to move to Minneapolis? And all the Norwegians start laughing. They're like, ha <laughs> ha. Why don't we move to Oslo? It would be just the same. I put the phone I said, anyone want to move to Santa Barbara? And three or four hands shot up in the Minneapolis office. So you could have put me in a semi-trailer. I didn't care where I lived. I was all into this idea. I mean, Santa Barbara is beautiful, but honestly, when you're building a business, it's all-consuming, at least it was for me. And I didn't even look up from my computer till like two years living in Santa Barbara when I kind of looked like, wow. It's like really pretty here. (laughs) There's like mountains and an ocean and you know.
1: As you heard, Lex moved the company to Santa Barbara and he even convinced Pear and his team to drop everything else and focus on Commission Junction with Pear becoming co-founder and CTO. While they weren't the first affiliate company to launch, they managed to climb their way to the top of the hill by rigorously focusing on publishers.
0: Commission Junction grew to be the industry's largest, but we were the third or fourth to start. And what I saw was the opportunity was to focus on the needs of the affiliate or the publishers who are hosting ads for advertisers. And they're taking all the risks. They're not getting paid unless they actually generate a lead or a sale. But notice too, they don't have accountability or control over how the advertiser actually converts or sells, right? So they take a lot of risk. I wanted to make it easier to track all their different ads they were running and critically get paid. And so we took a publisher centric approach with the thinking if we can get more publishers or more affiliates, they're synonymous. If we could get more affiliates in our network, we would attract more advertisers. And that would be a virtuous cycle.
1: And if the timeline I've got in my head is correct, all of this is happening right as the dot-com boom and bust of the late nineties and early two thousands is happening. So how did you deal with all of that? It
0: fared pretty well during the boom. It also navigated through the bust pretty powerfully. And that business is still going strong 20 years later.
1: And Commission Junction is still around, though it's actually now called CJ Affiliate. It was purchased in 2003 by ValueClick Media, which would later change its name to Conversant. But Lex is no longer involved, and he was kind enough to share a bit of the story about how he transitioned out of the company. Not surprisingly, it's a story we hear a lot on Webmasters when talking with founders who started their companies in their 20s. So...
0: I made a lot of mistakes as a CEO and I was getting really buffeted by how do you manage this rapidly scaling business? It's like absolute chaos. You know. How do I bring order and stability without disrupting and harming the core cool culture that we've built? I remember very vividly when the market crashed, I had raised a bunch of money from some investors had very different vision than I did. That's an obvious no-brainer is be as careful as who you take money from as whom you marry. And if there's a misalignment of vision and values at the top, you're just gonna be in a lot of conflict. Your life's gonna suck, you know? Anyway, the market crashed. I'm getting body-punched, body-punched, body-punched all the time by the environment and the board. And I remember we're sitting around like seven, eight, very experienced directors on the board and the market's crashed and everybody is just in fear gloom and doom and fear, it's never gonna recover. But
1: Commission Junction was making money on the web back then, right? Weren't you like a shining example of how the web could eventually support real business models?
0: It's hard to imagine that, but if you're in it, you can't predict or see the future easily. Some great contrarian investors can, obviously, but at least I didn't have that capability in my late 20s, early 30s. It's very vividly this palpable sense of fear in the room, and it just sucks. We made the decision as a board and I didn't stand up that we were gonna look to sell the company. I wish I had the wherewithal just to go, okay guys, I hear there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt, cool. Let's try to imagine five years from now. Is there gonna be more online advertising or less? Just that little simple question. Is this general market gonna be bigger or smaller in five years? If it's gonna be bigger, really, really question the notion to sell. Really question it because you can always develop capabilities. You can always get better. Ride that wave. I personally, as CEO founder, I was already being moved up to a chairman. I got fired up. I'm as sick of them as they're sick of me. Like the whole thing wasn't very fun. That business has been sold three or four times, always making money. It's still a pretty core fundamental piece of the internet platform.
1: And for me, this is where Lex's story gets particularly interesting because I'm always fascinated by how entrepreneurs respond to difficult stages in their careers. The really good ones don't just get knocked down and pick themselves back up. They're really thoughtful about what knocked them down and use that information as a springboard for their next opportunity. That's exactly what Lex did. He went on to launch a venture called Organizational Physics where he operates as, functionally, a teacher. He coaches other CEOs who are trying to scale their businesses and he uses all the lessons he learned as he struggled to scale his own.
0: I learned the hard way, right? I'm expressing my purpose and meaning in my work and my life by sharing what I found useful and true and a kind of a way to think about these challenges.
1: Okay, so you're using your experience to teach founders how to be CEOs. But isn't it true that the skill set for being a great entrepreneur and founder is just fundamentally different from the skill set needed to be a great CEO? Isn't that why the transition from startup founder to scaling CEO is so difficult?
0: My view is that most founders can actually, if they're committed and have some sense of self-awareness, can make the transition pretty far from entrepreneur to CEO or from startup in well into scale it. In fact, you'll see most transcendent brands and companies, they actually are founder-led. The founder gets pulled out on a stretcher. Now, you say, well, that's because they're Elon Musk or... Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or whatever. And the reality is we're all shaped by the environments that we inhabit. And so if you're running a high-pressure situation year after year after year, you get smart and capable really fast. So don't discount that those are just rare breeds. I mean, they obviously are rare, but most entrepreneurs can go much further than they think or than their boards think if they have the right operating approach, the right philosophy to these kinds of things. So I teach that.
1: Would you mind sharing your philosophy for teaching that?
0: A true entrepreneur is bringing it. You know, they want to give birth to this thing. You know, they might have thoughts of success or money, but most of those businesses don't really break through. Like it's more purpose-driven than that. And then they're just buffeted, just buffeted, buffeted, buffeted. And they are very goal-oriented that they want to bring this thing to life and bring it to the world. But they give so much that they'll start to get worn out. They'll start to get burnt out. They're having a hard time creating an environment, organizational design, operating principles, et cetera, where they're no longer the central figure. It's a hard transition to make as a human because you have to have super high awareness, self-awareness, right? Like you're born to do this thing, and now the kids are off at college effectively, right? You shouldn't parent them like you did before. Business is kind of similar. You gotta do the right thing for the child at the right sequence. And you have to have enough awareness as a parent to know when to adapt and change and have the ability to adapt or change. And for me, I was super goal-oriented, I achieved a lot of what I set out to, and I realized, ah, this isn't actually fulfilling me. That's almost a cliche now, I know, but for me, these are the things that'll make me successful. These will be the things that make me happy. And I got up there and I'm like, whoa. And so maybe one way to think about this is that that journey from being a entrepreneur to a well-integrated and happy, successful leader is you kind of shift from the goal to the process. I don't mean that the goal goes away. The goal is kind of there. You know, hey, we want to grow this thing. We want to make this impact. But how do you go about designing that environment? How do you go about recruiting people? How do you go about cascading culture and principles and things like that? And it's it's a different mindset because if you're goal-oriented, you're going to want to be in the center of the action. You get energy from making key decisions. You get energy from being the person at the top. And then you become a bottleneck. So you got to get your energy and satisfaction
1: from being more of a designer. And out of curiosity, what's one strategy you've used successfully in your career as an entrepreneur and CEO that might help someone listening to this? I
0: said no a lot. That's an underrated skill. I had a sense of what the business could become and the right business model to make it happen. But it was a strategic bet. Right away, I'd get companies showing up, I don't want to use your service, I want to buy your software. I'd say, no. And then, well, I'll buy you out. Okay, but no. (laughs) You'd get prompted to launch a new market or a new product extension early. And it's so easy to say, okay, let's try it. And then suddenly you're the teen pregnancy with triplets. You just created chaos. So on the big things related to culture, core strategy, what was acceptable, what wasn't, I was really fierce. But because I was highly innovative and entrepreneurial, I would say yes to a lot of other little things, like, oh, let's try that, oh, let's do that. Just grabbing all these little things around me, it just creating distraction, like the shiny object syndrome. So on some level, I did really good at saying no to the bigger things, core strategy, core culture, that kind of stuff, but I didn't do a good job of knowing when to say no and when to say yes to the little things, because I, I didn't understand how there's a sequence to follow.
1: Looking back at Lex's story, this point seems critical to his success. Notice how he talks about having a clear sense of what the business could become and then sticking almost religiously to that vision. This is a valuable quality for an entrepreneur operating in an immature market, which is what Lex was doing when he first launched Commission Junction. Remember at the time, people just thought about advertising differently.
0: Picture Don Draper and brand advertising. It's an emotional appeal and it can be very expensive. But if you want to create a category, it's brand marketing. And there's many industries built up around that model. In the early stages of the internet, the performance model was much easier to track. You could track things online. You could never track offline. The dollar volume, though, is much, much smaller. And there's a lot of debate about how to quantify attribution to the online ad. If an online ad triggers an impression, but it closes offline, how does the publisher get attribution for that? You with me? So just like any new emerging thing, it just has to go through the cycles to see what really works here and what's really the right approach. And in the end, it kind of works itself out. But in those early days, there's a lot of questions, a lot of debate, big, huge conflicts of interest. Like what? What's good for the advertiser might be seen as bad for the publisher. What's good for a CPM agency is seen as a loss for a performance agency. I would just say this for entrepreneurs, you always want to get on the right side of history. So you can kind of tell generational trends which way they're headed. and You want to be on the right side of those trends, not moving against them.
1: And if I may say, you seem to have done a good job of predicting those trends. I mean, when you see the ad industry now, which is an ad industry you really helped create, and it looks a lot like what you predicted over two decades ago, what do you think about it? Are you impressed with how right you were with your original vision?
0: I'll just say from my vantage point back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I would have bet you a billion dollars, a billion dollars, that the online advertising industry could never consolidate 90% of online ad spend under effectively two players. I mean, it was just impossible to conceive of that. I'm still kind of shocked that it's happened that way.
1: Okay, so it wasn't a perfect prediction, but to be fair, in 1998, nobody saw Google and Facebook coming. Still, the affiliate models Lex helped pioneer with Commission Junction remain the foundation for much of the current online advertising ecosystem, and it's pretty impressive to have seen that before just about anyone else. As for whether or not those models are a good thing, well, I'm sure that's a topic we'll have lots of chances to keep exploring in future episodes of Webmasters. For now, I'd like to thank Lex Sisney for taking the time to share his story and the story of Commission Junction. You can see what he's up to now and read some of his fantastic advice on scaling businesses over at organizationalphysics.com. I'd also like to thank our sound engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his work editing this episode, and a thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for supporting the podcast. If you're interested in buying or selling a cash flow positive internet business, be sure to check out latonas.com. I don't get any sort of affiliate referral for sending you there, but if you feel like it, do mention you heard about them via the show. That'll help me out. There are other ways you can help me out, too. You can start by leaving us a nice review on your podcasting app of choice. And, of course, please share this episode with everyone you know. If you got questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, or feedback, find us on Twitter. We're at WebmastersPod. I'm on Twitter, too, at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also write lots of articles about startups, business building, marketing, and whatnot over on medium.com. So search for my name there to see everything I've written. And if you don't want to miss our next episode, be sure to subscribe now because we've got another great story coming soon, I promise. But for now, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye.